Welcome to WVYC's Perspectives. This is an up-close look at the students, faculty, and administrators who make your college unique. This weekly show shines a spotlight on the programs and people here at YCP. This week's host is Jeffrey Schiffman. And welcome to WVYC's Perspectives. And today we are going to be talking with Eric Smith. Uh, Eric is a professor of rhetoric here at York College of Pennsylvania and has been here since uh, 2013, just as long as I did. We, we both realized that. First of all, thank you for joining us. You have to describe to me what a professor of rhetoric is. I, I think I know what it is, but what is it? Well, I always say that I, I study what Aristotle called the available means of persuasion. He defined rhetoric as the ability to, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, in any given situation, discern the available means of persuasion. What that means is, you know, you're going to talk one way to a fraternity and another way to, you know, members of an old folks home. You know, even if you have the same exact message, you're going to use different references, right? Um, you're, you're going to not use some references because you are predicting the reaction to that. So uh, that's the easy version, uh, you know, of my explanation. Uh, obviously, well, not obviously, but um, with my work and with the work of many rhetoricians, they're also studying uh, discourse, ideology, um, how people use language to persuade people into believing, you know, um, some larger ideas, right? Let me ask you, how did you come to that? This is not something that, you know, you like one day wake up and go, I want to be a rhetoric professor. Well, a lot of people <laughs> ask me that question, and a lot lately, actually. <laughs> it, it starts when I'm young, before I knew what the word rhetoric or ideology discourse, all the things I uh, crammed down my students' throats these days. And it started because I was fascinated by the, the difference in the uh, values, attitudes, and beliefs of different groups. <laughs> How do I? I, I? I talk about this so often that I'm trying to talk about it in an innovative way, but not, <laughs> it's just going to be the, um, the same old story. Um, I came from a predominantly white environment when I entered into high school, which was a very diverse high school. Okay. Um, Where'd you go to high school? Uh, Rancocas Valley Regional in New Jersey. Okay. And, you know, having the experience I had in the predominantly white environment, I was excited to find other black students, right? Okay, yeah. My brethren, right? <laughs> right. I, I, would, I would fit in here. Boy, was I wrong. I, I had a different discourse, a different set of values, attitudes, and beliefs um, that they either didn't recognize or recognize as inappropriate for a young black man. Okay. So, so, you, so yeah. you were being judged. I was. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. And that fascinated me. Initially, it depressed me, right? Really saddened me. I don't look back fondly on those days. No, I'll just say what I was saying. You know, I, it, it gave me a fascination for comparing and contrasting different discourses. And what I mean by discourse is not just language we use, right? Not just the metaphors we, we uh, tend to use, not just the references we use, but our values, right? Uh, the beliefs we have, um, how we mark social identity, uh, which means it goes beyond the linguistic and into the paralinguistic, you know, clothing, uh, you know, what I call sartorial rhetoric, right? All those things. 
where do they come from? Why do people abide by them? You know, uh, why do some people embrace them wholeheartedly and others uh, dismiss them? I was very, very interested in that, and especially since I was developing into somebody who would dismiss any kind of ready-made identity kit, as James G. would, would call it, a social linguist that I've studied a lot. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't want those identity kits. I, I wanted my own. So I, I was embracing individuality, and I was fine with that, but I was still interested in why other people you know, uh, were so serious about group membership. We are talking with uh, your college professor of rhetoric, uh, Eric Smith. Eric, uh, one of the things that you've been uh, talking about a lot re- recently is uh, critical race theory, mm-hmm. which I, I, I'm guessing that most of it, and this is, this is me kind of from speaking a little bit from ignorance, the whole Black Lives Matter uh, situation, or does it uh, precede that a little bit and, and was starting to come to fruition and starting to come, you know, bubble up, and now it's really full force? It uh, precedes that a lot. Okay. Actually. Um, Educate us. I will go um, <laughs> all the way back and start with what's called the Frankfurt School, which is a Marxist think tank um, that started, I believe, in the 20s and you know, lasted to some degree into the 80s, if you count Harpermont, but um, that's a different conversation. They saw... Marxism not working, right? Um, they saw Marx's Marxism not working. The proletariat isn't angry enough, right? <laughs> they need to be angry. Oh, wow. In, in order for this to happen. Uh, so, you know, they, they started talking about what's called nowadays cultural Marxism or ethno-Marxism. Um, Herbert Marcuse, uh, a prominent Frankfurt School Marxist in the 60s, wrote several essays basically arguing that, you know, Marxism isn't over because we have a ready-made proletariat. We, we have them there. They're the black nationalists. They're the people who are upset because King just got shot. Okay. They're already, we don't have to make people upset. They're already upset. Let's use them. And Angela Davis comes out of, you know, this, uh, this kind of thinking. Black uh, Panther movement too? Right. Yes. Uh, well, you to a degree. Okay. Um, I, I w- it seems like from my research, the Black Panthers weren't doing things exactly the way uh, their socialist uh, brethren wanted them to. They weren't focusing enough on workers and things like that. Marcuse was focusing on culture. He was focusing on language, uh, meaning, things like that. And he said what we need to do is turn everything upside down. Right? Um, whatever... You know, uh, whatever the powers that be, uh, however they define something, we have to redefine it. Uh, Whatever they think is aesthetically pleasing, we need to redefine that, right? Do everything to the opposite of that. And who was angrier at the establishment than black people in the 60s? And he saw this and said, that's a proletariat. There we go. Let's just embrace that. From that came uh, critical legal studies. And when I say critical theory, it's, that comes from the Frankfurt School as well. And it doesn't mean critical as in critical thinking. It means critical as in counter-hegemonic, as in, you know, um, yeah, counter-culture, you know, uh, sticking it to the man, right? That's what critical means in this context. Okay. People really need to know that, you know, because they think, oh, critical theory is, you know, habits of mind that help us think better. Logic, you know, no. 
That's not what's <laughs> happening. It's it's inherently revolutionary. It, would it be better if we didn't use the word critical? Uh, yes, <laughs> but um, it's already been established. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of. And, and it's there. So from critical theory in general comes critical legal studies. From critical legal studies comes critical race theory. Um, critical legal studies had obviously, you know, black professors uh, in the law schools back then. And they saw, you know, the civil rights era as good, but not good enough. It was taking too long for things to come to fruition in their minds. In fact, they went as far as to say that they don't trust classical liberal values because they saw them as a maintainer of the status quo, right? Or some kind of Trojan horse for white supremacy. That's what they saw it as. So they don't trust that, which means that the CRT movement, even in theory, is inherently illiberal, right? Um, and goes against the, what are supposed to be the very foundations of American society. Right. And they do this because they think um, racism is systemic, which means that it's everywhere all the time. Like, I mean, everywhere all the time. Right. Somehow the person who handed you your Big Mac was being racist. Somehow you just don't recognize it. Right. Um, this is OK. I, I, I hear you. Um, so so let's talk about some of the tenets of of uh, anti, I'm sorry, critical race theory, and then how it's manifesting today, all right? So a lot of the tenets are good. Intersectionality comes out of critical race theory. The idea that no one is just one demographic, they're an intersection of various demographics. Um, Anti-essentialism, because people are various demographics, you can't say, oh, that person's black, so he's this, that, or the other thing. This is original CRT. There's also interest conversions. Things don't happen for black people unless they also benefit white people. That idea. Derrick Bell, one of the founding fathers of CRT, uses you know, the, the desegregation. We didn't do that because it was the right thing to do. We did it because there was a Cold War and we needed to show the world that we weren't these jerks that the Russians are. And there, there are other uh, examples, too. Thomas Sowell, I believe, talks about, he doesn't you know, talk about interest conversions, but he does talk about you know, something comparable to it. And he says, you know, uh, Jackie Robinson, you know, they weren't doing that because it was the right thing to do. They were doing it because Jackie Robinson was Jackie Robinson. Jackie Rob yeah, he was Jackie Robinson. And, you know, um, there are other players who were not white who ended up being, you know, all but one of the next several, you know, like nine years or something. Yeah. All but one year, the all-star, the most valuable player was a person of color. Yeah, Hank Aaron, William, yeah, Willie Mays. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we could go down the list. Right, and so they weren't going to let the Dodgers have all of them. Right. You know, so that's how they mixed it up. Can you imagine if they were all on the Dodgers? I mean, <laughs> that was interest convergence. They did it for themselves, but it happened to benefit black people. Right. So that's a part of critical, critical race theory as well. And you can understand, you know, uh, the uh, efficacy of, of some of these ideas. Unfortunately, there are some downsides to critical race theory that have led to what it is being called today. Derek Bell, somebody I already mentioned, uh, a founding father of critical race theory, wrote an essay in the early 90s called Racial Realism. And the thesis, you know, the argument in that essay is that racism is never going away. It can't be defeated. 
what we can do is fight it anyway to maintain a sense of dignity. So this, in my opinion, defeatist outlook, and he, he explains why he, he feels this way, things like that. I'm not entirely sure he explains it well enough, um, but he does explain it. It is an essay. You can go and, and read it. But this nihilism um, has morphed a little bit, and, and it's morphed you know, anti-racism a bit to the point where what people are calling CRT today, I call critical social justice. I call it that because other people call it that. And the other people that call it that are people like Robin DiAngelo, who considers herself a critical uh, social justice scholar. Critical social justice takes things like intersectionality, says it's not just something you should consider when looking at somebody. It's also a determiner of ethos, of credibility. So the, the more downtrodden intersections you have, the more uh, you should be allowed to talk in a certain situation. You know, uh, you should be listened to, obviously. The more privileged intersections you have, the more you should shut up and listen. You know, that's different from what it was conceptualized before. Anti-essentialism, that's gone. You know, now everybody is to be interpreted by their race, by their membership in a certain race group. And even if you have intersections there, right, you're still essentialized as that intersection. That's who you are. You know, forget about your personality, your experiences. You are that list of things. It, does does that kind of depersonalize all this sort of yes. stuff? Yes, and and that I, that's I think part of the big problem. Well, the depersonalization. Yeah. Think about the origins of critical theory, right? Um, these are Marxist thinkers, you know, who uh, you know individuality kind of goes against their strategy. So you can see the seeds of its origin in Marxism uh, today and its uh, implementation in schools and uh, corporations. All kinds of things. We're talking with Eric Smith, professor of uh, rhetoric here at your college. Do you think that we can ever get past this? I think we can. How? Well, those classical liberal values that um, CRT scholars were questioning and CSJ, critical social justice scholars, are definitely um, you know, not approving of. Those values are social justice. The issue is that we weren't living up to them. The issue is that we weren't doing them correctly. Individuality, free speech, um, equality, uh, the concept of merit. Even if you want to get together and collaborate on what merit should be, merit should be something. Um, colorblindness, you know, um, that's been demonized lately as, uh, oh, you, you, you don't see color, so you don't see racism. No, I can see racism. What colorblindness means is that whether I like you or not doesn't depend on your skin color. That's all it's ever meant. We can talk about the Marxist uh, changing of definitions, right? Sure. Like what I talked about with uh, Herbert Marcuse. Um, so we have social justice. Freedom of speech isn't for the powerful. The powerful can speak anytime they want. It's for the powerless. It's for the people with little to no power, right? So that they can speak and not get in trouble, right? That, that, that's social justice. So, I mean, to be against those values um, doesn't make sense if you're trying to enhance uh, racial equality, right? It doesn't make sense if you're trying to create the uplift of a downtrodden group. It makes sense if you're a Marxist. And I'm just going to stop there with that statement. <laughs> okay. Eric Smith, uh, your college professor of rhetoric, thank you very much. This is a, uh, a tiny little you yes. know, snippet. Uh, yeah, we could spend uh, probably, and we'd violate every rule that I just talked to you about <laughs> podcasting. But the, the point is that th this is 
the conversation that we're starting to have, is mm-hmm. that a good one? Um, what do you mean? Is it good that we're at least exploring this? Um, it's good that CRT is on people's you know, radar now. We're not really talking about it across lines. People who are all for it are not talking to people who see flaws in it. And that's by design, too. You know, you, uh, if, you, if, if they spoke to us, they'd be dignifying what we're talking about with the response. So they don't even do that. Don't even talk to the other side, right? Which is also something that comes out of Marcuse. Um, he wrote it, um, an essay called um, Repressive Tolerance, when he basically said, um, well, he talked about the right at the time, but he was talking about hegemony, you know, the, uh, the bourgeois. Don't accept, don't tolerate anything from them, even if it's something you already do, right? You also do. Don't tolerate anything from them. So if you're going to talk to them, that is tolerate, tolerating, right? So we can't do that. So there is a conversation, but it's not being had across lines. People who see flaws in it are talking to other people who see flaws in it. And people who embrace it are talking to other people who embrace it. And that's where our politics have gone today yes. anyway. Yes, exactly. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for WVYC's Perspectives. The program airs weekly on Mondays and Fridays at 9 o'clock. Public Affairs program is also available as a podcast at wvyc.podbean.com. Jeffrey Schiffman serves as the Executive Director of Perspectives. We hope you join us again for this in-depth look at the York College community.